Hello and welcome into BTN's Take 10 Podcast. This is Alex Roo of BTN, and we're back on the Take 10 Podcast with another football-focused episode. We've got another great guest, another national college football writer, and this time it's Chris Vanini of The Athletic. We've got a bunch of guys on from The Athletic, and Chris is uh, as talented as they come, just like uh, all their writers are, and they always deliver when they come on the show, so it's good to have him. A um, little disclaimer, we did have some audio issues on phone call with Chris. It, it was salvageable, but there's a little bit noticeable audio inconsistency in the recording. So it sounds like he's talking out of a tomato can. That's why we were able to salvage some of the uh, static, edited it out, and we will let you hear what we, uh, what we got out of Chris. And um, the discussion is good, so just bear with us with some of the audio issues and uh, try and enjoy the content. After Chris, we got Harold Shelton with his weekly Stathead segment. Harold, as always, goes behind the numbers, provides some real good in-depth analysis of what happened last weekend in college football and how it projects to the weekend ahead. Coming up, we got a, probably the biggest game so far, definitely the biggest game so far in the Big Ten this college football season coming up with Michigan and Wisconsin and a couple other intriguing Big Ten matchups this weekend. So plenty to get into with Harold and plenty to touch on with Chris as well. So we'll get right to Chris first. As I've said at the top, he's a national college football writer for The Athletic, Michigan State grad. So he has some Spartans expertise as well. And we'll toss it over to Chris right now. It's a Take 10 podcast discussion with Chris Vanini. And here he is. I'm very pleased to be joined by college football writer for The Athletic. He also hosts the Green and White Noise podcast and The Athletic Podcast Network. You can find him on Twitter at Chris Vanini. It's Chris Vanini. Chris, how's it going, man? I am doing well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for joining me. And as I've kind of gotten in the habit of doing on uh, on this show, before we dive into the nitty gritty of college football talk, I want to get into your background a little bit first. And just going through your background and your bio, you're a Michigan State grad. And I'm kind of curious because I'm a, I'm a big time guy myself and curious what the sports journalism scene is like at that school because I've, I've met some people who are, you know, from the uh, kind of traditional schools like Syracuse or Mizzou, and then there's some people like Nicole Auerbach, who was actually the very first guest on this podcast and uh, went to Michigan, where there's no J school, but they have a respected paper. So if you could just educate me kind of on the scene at Michigan State and the role you played in it while you were there. Yeah, so I first got to Michigan State in fall of 07, and I didn't, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I ultimately decided that I, I liked writing and would look into getting into sports writing. And I found out after the fact that not a, not just anybody can write for the state news, the student newspaper there, you have to apply, they hire people. It's a very uh, structured process. So I spent a year just kind of doing some stuff on my own. And my sophomore year, I got hired onto the newspaper. Somehow, I'm not really... I'm still not really sure how because I, I got hired with a bunch of people who were like high school all state writers and I had not done any of that stuff, but for some reason they felt uh, a reason to hire me. And, and I spent three years there. First year doing uh, kind of a little bit of everything, second semester doing student government, and then I spent the last two years on sports. And I, I, everything I learned, not everything, but the foundation of my you know, work and, and things that I do came from that time at the state news. It is one of the best college newspapers 
in the country. Uh, it's regularly up for pacemaker awards, which are awards for the top college newspaper. And and we had I, there were an incredible number of talented uh, editors and writers above me who helped you know helped me work on my stuff. Had kept an incredibly high standard at that paper, so everybody who came in had to live up, live up to that uh, standard. And so there is a journalism school there. Uh, at Michigan State, that is, is is a very good journalism school and has produced a number of uh, uh, people from outside of the state news. But for me, it was all about the state news. You know, it's where you make, you know, you spend long nights there working on the paper. You make lifelong friends there and, and, and cover things that you haven't really uh, done before. It's a little bit different now. I actually went back a couple months ago for the first time in a number of years and talked to the kids there. And they don't produce the daily paper anymore like we used to. So it's uh, different the economics of the of the paper are certainly different, but still, I, the state news was a uh, 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 transformative experience uh, in my life. And then I, you know, when people tell me where I went to school, you know, I say Michigan State, but I also say the state news. Yeah, and you, since graduating from Michigan State, were in for quite a few different outlets, correct? Before joining the Athletic in, in 2017. Yeah, I spent the first year kind of just freelancing around a bunch of. Places and then in 2012, I got hired uh, by a, someone who was starting a new site called CoachingSearch.com, which was to cover football coaching changes. I also ran Michigan State blog on the side, the only colors with SB Nation. We did some podcasting there. Spent a year, uh, like half a year, with 24/7 Sports, doing some Michigan State stuff there as well. But uh, was with Coaching Search for five years. Ran it on my own for the final two years, and then that ultimately led into the athletic. Yeah, so now that you're kind of a full time, you know, national college football writer, um, how has the focus of, of your work changed, if at all? And, and is it uh, nice to just kind of, you know, take a zoomed out look at, at college football? Yeah, it, it's you know, coaching search was working, you know, twenty four hours a day, every day, really, uh, especially when I was the only one when I was running it on my own. Everything and keep the site going and everything. Follow all sorts of press conferences, radio interviews from everything. Then when I got hired at the Athletic, I'm able to take a step back and look at things from a, a bigger perspective. I don't have to write as many things. I'm able to put more time into stories, write longer things, uh, uh, you know, more in depth pieces. I, I focus a lot on the group of five, along with still doing the coaching changes. So. Um, it's it's more like I said, more in depth work, and, and it's nice. You know, the nice part with the athletic is you're not on a, a click or a story quota or something like that. It's about it's about producing stuff that people are willing to pay for, and they they let you, uh, you know, put the they they give you the time to to put the right amount of effort into that. And yeah, I encourage everyone to check out your work uh, for the athletic. I especially want to touch on a story you wrote about. Um, about a month ago, it really kind of resurfaced this past weekend. Uh, Arkansas State head coach Blake Anderson, uh, his wife Wendy, unfortunately passed away recently from breast cancer. And uh, Arkansas State played Georgia, and the crowd did, did a pink out in her honor. So it, uh, the story kind of resurfaced. It's obviously a very sad story, but one that shows kind of how tight knit the uh, college football community can be. So, how did you become aware of this story, and uh, what went into reporting it? came up her cancer came back late last season i remember hearing about it and blake would periodically give updates on twitter throughout the off season 
and you know, I went to Sunbelt Media Day, and I had not met Blake before, but I met him there for the first time, and it, it sounded like things had really taken a turn for the worse, and so I wanted to write about the two of them and, and this fight that they've been going through, and about a week or two after that, I, I went up to Arkansas State, and, and Blake was very open about everything that they'd been through um, in their marriage before this and then how they got together and when he quit coaching at one point to, to work on his marriage and then what this fight has been like. Uh, that The day I was there was a particularly tough day for Wendy. He actually had to leave after practice to go home for a few hours and I was unable to uh, speak with Wendy. But it was just everybody kind of had a sense at that point that Things that you know, things were not looking good for for the next few weeks, and and and, I, and so I was able to you know write that story, talk to a lot of people at Arkansas State, and it came out on August fifteenth, which is my birthday, and I didn't notice that I didn't notice until we published it, but that was also Wendy Anderson's birthday, and for that coincidence was. Wild. I, I had no idea. And the Arkansas State community, you know, lo- loved the story. A lot of people at the school reached out. You know, Blake told me how much it meant to him. And, you know, then a, I think a week or two of that, when he ended up uh, passing away, and then Blake took the leave of absence. But, you know, it, it was a story about, not about what happens on the field. It's about, it was a story about a couple and what it's like to be a coaching family and, and the things you have to go through. The, all the moving you have to do, the time commitments, and you know, there's a lot of coaches will say, will talk up their wives in the press conference when they get a new job or something like that, and it, it's not just lip service because coaches' wives have to go through a, a whole lot, and it means a lot uh, to those coaches to, to have someone who's there with them through all of that, and that's that's certainly what what Blake and Wendy were. Yeah, I definitely encourage everyone to check that story out among uh, among your other pieces, and uh, definitely a very powerful one. And before we move on, I do want to highlight a couple of recurring columns you write because I'm curious about what kind of goes into them because um, they're very comprehensive. And one is is the weekly piece you do about the 19 interesting stats uh, of the week. So curious, why 19 stats, and how do you go about digging up 19 interesting topics each week? Does it ever get difficult to organize or, or uh, get to that number uh, of, of, I guess, unique stats across college football? Well, it's been 19 every time this week or every week this year. It was a different number every week last year. I don't want to get to 20 because 20 starts to look like too much. Um, it just has happened to end up being 19. I could probably do less depending on what happens in the week. But, you know, I just spend the day. If, if It's a lot easier if I'm, I'm at home on a Saturday, watching all the games on Twitter all the time, catching different things that are going on, checking through the post-game notes that, that the schools send out, and just finding some stuff that, a lot of stuff that's just really, you know, weird and stuff I you don't normally see, like Nebraska and Northern Illinois having four, kind of more like five block kicks in a single half, like like last week. Just, just some, some weird stuff that... Uh, people may have missed or, or maybe a reason to go back and check out something. All right, kind of the same concept. You also rank all 130 teams in college football, one through 130. Um, 
obviously, you know, top 25 has been a concept around forever, but once you add 100 to that, it's, it gets a little more complicated. So how uh, difficult does it get when you're trying to get to the bottom, you know, trying to sort out your Ball State, Boston College, Akron, and trying to, you know, make it to, to the very end? Well, with my focus on the group of five, that's why I was the one who was assigned to do the 132 more than two years ago when we started this because I was the only one who was paying attention to the teams who were in the bottom 50. So they felt that I was best suited to, to do that because anybody can do a top 25. Uh, so uh, it's just paying attention. I, I do it on Sunday. It takes me a few hours because, you know, you got to make sure. It, it's like putting together a puzzle. You got to remember who played who and you don't want to have somebody who just beat somebody you know, a couple spots higher. and So it gets progressively harder as the season goes on. And, you know, I, I put just as much thought into the top ten as I do the bottom ten. And, you know, Central Michigan, you know, beat Akron last week. So Central Michigan had to move up from, I think, 127 to 115 or something like that. Uh, uh, so, but it, it, it's it's fun. It's, it's, it's a way to let, you know, fans of those schools know that we are paying attention to everybody. All right, a couple of uh, larger Big Ten questions now um, before we wrap up. In your top 130, the highest Big Ten team you have ranked is Ohio State at number five. And, and I'm curious how uh, how much better you think Ohio State is than the rest of the conference. Like last week I was talking on this podcast and I thought Penn State might be up there. I don't think that's the case at this point anymore after seeing them struggle. Um, we'll learn if Michigan or even Wisconsin is close after this weekend. But how wide of a gap do you think the Buckeyes have uh, over everyone else? You know, I picked Ohio State in the playoff before the season. Picked them to win the Big Ten, and it's just it was just because you know I know Ohio State had to replace a lot, but including a coaching staff. But they just always have so much more talent than everybody else in the league that I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt until I see something proven otherwise. And through three weeks, Ohio State has lived lived up to that, looking just as good as they have always been. And, you know, Michigan has struggled. Michigan State's looked rough. Penn State has struggled. Wisconsin has yet to play real competition. Iowa looks pretty good, but, you know, they escaped Iowa State the other day. So uh, I I think it's Ohio Ohio State with a healthy gap above everybody else. I I think they're almost 10 spots higher than I think Penn State might be the next highest pick for Wisconsin. Yeah, and since uh, you know you're obviously plugged into the Michigan State program um, pretty closely, or have been in the past, and there were concerns heading into last off season. Aside from a breakout against Western, Western Michigan, it looks like the concerns on the offensive side of the ball have persisted for the Spartans. And um, just after watching the Arizona State game, where kind of those same concerns reared their heads again, what does Michigan State need to rectify to avoid a repeat of last season's frustrations? They, they need to get explosive plays, and they, they got them against Western Michigan because Western Michigan left guys wide open, but they have not been able to do it otherwise. You know, they put up more than 400 yards on Arizona State, but all they got was one touchdown and three field goal attempts. They couldn't finish drives. They're not, they always have to put together scoring drives that are 9, 10 plays because they have to dink and dunk all the way down because they cannot get explosive plays in the running game or the passing game. 
in part because the offensive line is, is banged up and struggling, in part because the wide receivers seem to have trouble getting open. Uh, so, you know, that's the biggest, that's the biggest issue. Score, nothing is more, nothing correlates more with a, with a scoring drive than an explosive play, a play of 20 or more yards, 30 or more yards. And Michigan State just has heck of a lot of trouble getting those explosive plays. One more thing on Michigan State. I think uh, points will definitely be at a premium this weekend with them in Northwestern. I mean, they might they might not score twenty. Yeah, the over under I think was thirty eight and a half. It's just crazy low. Both teams are really struggling on offense. Both teams have talent on defense. Uh, a couple of years, you know, two years ago, Michigan State went into Northwestern and it was a shootout, and and Brian Lewerke passed for more than forty yards. So the Michigan State Northwestern games are always a little weird. Northwestern's won three in a row in the series, so uh, I would expect I'd expect it to be a little weird because these games always seem to go that way. All right, Chris. Last question. Um, I saw you're a pro wrestling fan um, per your Twitter account. Tweet a lot about pro wrestling. I gotta say, a guy like George Kittle has really kind of brought that crossover between college football and football uh, and wrestling in the mainstream. I don't know if you've seen all the stunts he's done, but that community is kind of growing. Yeah, you know, I actually wrote something last year about football players who become professional wrestlers. There was a Ichor Ewan, a former defensive lineman in Iowa, who's a, who's a big guy in WWE now. Football players love pro wrestling because of the, the, the showmanship and everything, and, and wrestlers like football, and it kind of goes back and forth. You see a lot of teams have championship belts that they use in, in various forms, so it's just kind of uh, that entertainment aspect a lot of people are drawn to it, and entertainment mixed with competition. And I think that's what a lot of football players uh, like as well. Yeah, George did a uh, kind of pro wrestling themed intro video for Iowa this year. It was really cool. And it was, it was uh, you know, like you said, it kind of matches pretty well with, with the pageantry and showmanship of what college football is. Um, Chris, that's all I got for you. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much for your insight and uh, sharing your knowledge. And hopefully, get you back on again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, thanks once again to Chris Vanini for joining me. Really appreciate him jumping on. Thanks to everyone who listened through and kind of stuck with us. Through the not, uh, not exactly exceptional audio quality, but uh, powered through, and we'll try and get that resolved heading forward. All right, as I said at the top, we got Harold Shelton coming up next. His stat head segment is uh, every week, pretty much during the football and basketball seasons, where he gets into the nitty-gritty in-depth analysis of um, pretty much every important game that's on the docket and uses the past statistical indications and analysis to kind of project what's coming up like good statisticians and researchers do. So we'll toss it over to our Stathead segment with Harold Shelton. Starts right now. back at it here with Harold Shelton for the Stathead segment in our makeshift studio. Hopefully it's the last week in this uh, kind of miniature conference room before we get into the the uh, new digs. H, I know you're ready to get out of here. Yeah, I am. It looks like we got some progress though, so that's a good thing. Hopefully uh, in a week or two we'll be up and running. Absolutely. So until then, uh, you know, we got some football to distract us until we move into our new home and... Um, Honestly, I think we kind of needed to be distracted from the football this past weekend, <laughs> uh, week three. It was 
not the you know finest performance across the board. I, I was kind of waiting for some you know entertainment or a game to kind of reel me in throughout last weekend, and nothing really did. It was it was the first time in a while that I could remember that I I, I wasn't really locked in to the outcome of uh, any particular game, and, and just overall kind of a downer weekend I think for the conference. Um, the wins were mostly shaky. The uh, losses weren't great. Um, the only team I think that can feel really good is, is Ohio State after they uh, did what they were supposed to do against Indiana and then some. Uh, they kind of demolished Indiana. Iowa, you know, you always feel good with a rivalry win. And Nebraska won comfortably. But besides that, um, just kind of across the board, uh, kind of, you know, just a, just a kind of a downer, downer weekend. So I don't know if you had the similar observations uh, you're nodding, so I assume you did. <laughs> yeah, no, it was definitely not a good week for the league. Um, I think that it could have been a lot worse. I mean, Minnesota pulled one out of the fire again, and then Iowa found a way to, to get the win despite trailing most of that game. They are outplayed in that game, but still found a way to win. If those two results go a different way, I mean, we're looking at, you know, a bloodbath for the league instead. It's just a downer. Uh, but like you said, Ohio State – was impressive and more and more they kind of look like they're a step ahead of everybody else yeah absolutely and I, I don't know just looking across some of these results like you said uh minnesota with another very narrow win it, there was a point i think they had third or fourth down in their own territory it looked like that, that game was going to be over and they managed to pull it out um northwestern you know beat a bad unlv team by, by 16 um michigan state disappointing game against arizona state purdue battled some injuries and, and took a Pretty lopsided loss to TCU. And then you kind of called it um, Temple getting the best of Maryland again. Temple has been to Maryland what Maryland has been to Texas the last couple of years. So uh, it's just kind of interesting. And, and just kind of out of those results, and Illinois also lost to Eastern Michigan, which was the third time in a row Eastern Michigan's beat a Big Ten team. Rutgers and Purdue know about that, and Illinois found out firsthand. So, you know, out of all these kind of iffy results, are there any teams that you think – should be less worried than others. Any teams that shouldn't panic, and uh, on the flip side, is there anyone that you would, uh, you know, maybe heed some of those red flags? Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to go with Minnesota in terms of not panicking. This kind of just seems to be a pattern of theirs. You know, mm-hmm. we think we talked about it in the last couple of weeks. They just find ways to win. I mean, this is the fifth straight one possession win they've had. You know, including all three games this year. Uh, I think there's something to be said for finding a way to win, knowing that you're trailing, that you have that confidence to go pull a win out. I mean, Nebraska's had trouble with it. Purdue's had trouble with it. A lot of these programs that are trying to build something, you know, when they hit some adversity, it's, oh, no, here we go again. It doesn't seem to be that way with Minnesota, and I think that's a credit to that coaching staff and those players. Um, In terms of the concern, I'd say uh, Michigan State should have some concern Mm -hmm. for sure. Um, I think Purdue should have some concern, mostly because of the injuries. Um, the Purdue one, I think the bye week comes at a perfect time for them just because they need to get Elijah Sindelar back. They were already beat up with, you know, Marcus Bailey off for the year and Lorenzo Neal. They're still working him back in, uh, you know, after the ACL injury last year. Uh, you know, obviously offensively, they can't run the ball at all and they have to throw it around. And you have a quarterback who's in concussion protocol. Who knows how long that even lasts? And so I think they probably have uh, the most issues of anybody. But um, if we're talking in terms of uh, you know expectations and all that, I think the the Spartans have the most to be concerned about. Yeah, and when you're a team like Purdue and you're trying to build um, a program, really, and you're trying to have another 
foundational year that 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 is a bridge to something better um it, it's just tough when you get injuries right like you can't really it's not that you can't overcome them but it, it's really tough it makes it that much tougher to overcome um and have a good season when your key guys go down uh, marcus bailey obviously and then like you mentioned Sindelar and, and the uncertainty surrounding them uh one thing we didn't really mention is penn state with the narrow win over Pitt. i didn't get a chance to watch much of that game um, I, I get the sense it was not too impressive a performance, especially considering where Pitt's at and what Penn State did to them last year um, at Pitt. So is there any issues with Penn State? What do you think um, the Nittany Lions have to shore up as we get into Big Ten play here coming up? Um, I think there are some issues there. I'm not going to base it solely off of the Pitt game. I know last year's Pitt score looked really lopsided, but that actually was a game for a while, and then Pitt just self-destructed and allow Penn State to run away with it. They didn't do that this time, and so the game wound up being pretty close. Uh, rivalry games, you know, a lot of times you throw the record books out. Um, obviously, we've seen that in the past, and, you know, Pitt has played them tough before. So I'm, I don't really take too much from that, but I think Penn State has an issue where they're kind of the in the early James Franklin era offense where it's an all or nothing. They don't have consistent drives. They're really bad on third down. They're not great in short yardage, but they'll hit a 40-yard play on you. They'll hit a 50-yard play. They'll, they'll run for 30 yards, and then you're stuck in third and 12 on another drive. There's just no consistency with them offensively, and when you had a guy like Trace McSorley, you had two NFL running backs with you know Miles Sanders, Saquon. It was hard to replace those guys, and so for the first time in a while, I you know definitely the first time under Franklin, they're a defensive led football team. Uh, you just wonder if that'll be enough to beat the Ohio State's, Michigan's, Michigan State's of the world. Yeah, before we even get into previewing next week, there's not much sense I don't think in previewing Ohio State's matchup with Miami, Ohio. Uh, I think we know how it's going to turn out. Yeah, but I do want to talk to Buckeyes um, before we move on to next week. What is Ohio State? doing well like they're obviously firing on on most cylinders if not all um what is fueling their hot start Uh, i think offensively they're way more balanced than they have been um i think fields is a better thrower than barrett and a better runner than haskins so he's kind of the best of both both worlds there um they actually are establishing tailback run game like they're running more downhill with dobbins uh, defensively, they're not really giving up a ton of big plays. You know, I think they've switched from, you know, strictly man-to-man or, you know, mostly man-to-man to just kind of mixing it in here and there. Uh, D-line has been great. They're getting pressure on the quarterback. Uh, you know, receivers are making plays. I think Fields still has a couple things to work on in terms of, you know, throwing the ball late, maybe holding on to it too long, trying to find somebody open and, you know, taking sacks where he doesn't need to. But, I mean – through three games, you know, it looks like there's no drop-off at all. Yeah, the defense, I remember, was really suspect last year. Like you said, with the big plays, um, nearly, you know, losing to Nebraska, to, to Maryland, and then the, the dam kind of breaking against Purdue. So, I mean, that's kind of the biggest difference to me so far is that you haven't seen that yet. Obviously, there's more tests ahead, but so far, so good for them. Um, I do want to look ahead now and, and give us plenty of time to, to preview week four, which hopefully will be a little prettier of a product than we saw this past weekend, and I think we should just start off with the big game in the Big Ten. Um, Michigan at Wisconsin. It's, I think, like number 10 versus number 14, something like that. And uh, really a case of a team in Wisconsin that's looked pretty much invincible so far against you know pretty poor competition, and uh, a team in Michigan that um, has not impressed and there's uh, caused a lot of questions to swirl around them. 
and creates you know a lot of pressure I think on, on them to perform well uh, at Camp Randall. So let's just start off with kind of the big matchup um, with the star of Wisconsin so far this year, Jonathan Taylor, versus what I think is kind of a star as a unit in Michigan's defense. Um, where do you think the edge lies in, or it, does one you know unit have an edge over the other with Wisconsin's offense and Michigan's defense? How do you think these uh, you know units kind of match up? Um, I would think Wisconsin would have the edge on offense. Um, that line has looked great so far, despite replacing all of those guys from last year. Um, Taylor's become more dangerous, you know, not only as a runner, but as a receiver as well. You could tell that he, he's gotten a little faster. He dropped some weight, so he's a little more elusive. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that's interesting about uh, Taylor against Michigan is, for whatever reason, uh, granted they didn't need it, and two years ago because they won the game. But last year, you know, they kind of went away from them early when they had success running the ball. And then when Michigan kind of jumped on them, he was a non-factor after that. I think uh, if they actually give Taylor the ball the normal 20 to 25 times, maybe even more, they should win the game. He hasn't had 20 carries against Michigan yet. I think that's interesting, despite the fact that he's still averaging six and a half yards a carry against them. It might be more of a, hey, let's go with what works here. Mm-hmm. Let's make sure we hand the ball off to our best guy. What are some uh, updates, if any? I mean, I know this is probably the last program you're going to get updates out of or anything related injury-wise um, from Ann Arbor. But obviously, you know, Patterson, uh, it's surface that he, he's battling a little issue. Peoples-Jones, we haven't seen him yet this year. Uh, who is potentially sidelined for this one, or at least you know dealing with issues that could could hamper him um, come game time? Well, I know John, John Runyon, you know all Big Ten first team left tackle, you know has been banged up, you know hadn't really played much at all. Um, they said he could potentially be back, which could help that offensive line a lot. Yeah. Um, you know they've given up six sacks already, so if he's back, that certainly helps that and the run game. Uh, Peoples Jones, we don't know. You know we've seen him in the boot, you know the first two weeks. Um, we'll see if he's back. You know, I think the, the bye week came at a good time for them, you know, just because they were so beat up. You know, Shea Patterson, he had a, he suffered a little bleak injury, you know, the first play of the season. Um, he's been battling through that. He hasn't looked right. He's had issues uh, with ball security. He's already lost three fumbles. Uh, so, you know, you would think two weeks there would, would be able to help that out. Uh, on the defensive side, you had a couple of D tackles and Donovan Jeter, Michael Dumpfor. Uh, we'll see if they're ready to go. They're kind of thin up front, so it would help to have some reinforcements against, you know, a physical football team like Wisconsin. Uh, you know, we'll see if those guys play, but we probably won't know until right before kick. Right, and Jim Harbaugh has brought Michigan football back to, you know, the national conscience and the national – in the forefront of, of you know, national storylines. And – you know that's that's nobody's fault. I don't think. Um, you know, aside from maybe some some uh, press clippings created at, at, at pressers or what have you, but it's created such a pressure cooker situation that every game now, especially in year five, is is such a big deal. It's seen as such a, a must win. Do you think that seeps into what Michigan is putting on the field? Like I, I would argue that I think it does in a situation like last year's Ohio State game where everything just kind of cascaded and, and fell apart in a matter of, like, two hours. Right. So do you think that's the case right now, and do you think um, Michigan will be pressing it all in their first really 
big game of the year? Uh, it's interesting you say that because I think before the season started, when people looked at this game, people thought, oh, you know, it's a tough game, so it's tough to go to Madison, but people thought that they would win the game. Mm-hmm. And I believe they were like a seven-and-a-half-point favorite in August since this, you know, before this game. Uh, now Wisconsin's a three-and-a-half-point favorite. So just after two games, there's already been an 11-point swing in the minds of those who, who gamble on such things. Um, I think that actually kind of helps them a little bit because now they're not expected to win. You know, a lot of people are saying, you know, how good this Wisconsin team looks and, you know, Michigan struggled and they kind of have opportunity to, you know, shut some people up. And look, it's time. I mean, he's been there for five, you know, it's his fifth year. They haven't beaten a top 15 team on the road since 2006. I mean, BTN wasn't even around yet. Man, it's time. Like it, you know, you hired this guy to win these kind of games, and you're trying to get to Indy. You're trying to win the Big Ten. You started in the top ten. These are games you have to win. Right. On the flip side, you know, Wisconsin, I think in as a result of its disappointing season last year, now has had a maybe not a better start than people expected, but a, a very encouraging start. And I think the pressure is a little bit off of them coming into this game and um, should be a pretty good scene. I don't know if you have a prediction or if, if you think uh, – one team has an edge overall. Um, I think you said if they give Taylor the ball enough, Wisconsin should win. I tend to agree with that. But, uh, you know, the stakes are just so high on the other side for the Wolverines. I just think it's it's whether they rise to that occasion or not, which is, you know, it's such a broad statement. But um, we saw what happens when they don't last year in Columbus. So any predictions, H? I don't know. Uh, I, I'm going to go with Wisconsin, like 24-21. Yeah, I, I, th- I think the Badgers win. I think it is close. I could see a, a 24-17, 24-20 kind of game. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know, Jack Cohn makes just enough plays uh, to compliment Taylor. You know, that receiving core has been really, really good. It's really balanced. Uh, you know, we'll see if Michigan can find a way to, to slow those guys down. Um, you know, if they're if Cone's in third and long and they send some exotic looks his way, maybe he turns it over. He's still relatively young at the position. So uh, you would think, you know, quarterback wise, Shea Patterson could have the edge if he actually takes care of the ball. And if they play turnover free football, I wouldn't be shocked if they won. But I do think he will turn it over. And so I'm going to lean toward Wisconsin. All right. Moving on uh, before we wrap up to Michigan State at Northwestern, kind of a weird series in the last few years um, and, and an interesting matchup in the sense that both teams have had their shares of offensive struggles. Um, Michigan State, after you know a historic performance in terms of this like three to five year window here, scoring 50 points against Western Michigan, uh, put up only seven against Arizona State and um, cost them the game. So Northwestern's beaten Michigan State three in a row, uh, three times in a row. First of all, what do the Wildcats do that kind of has had their number in the last few years? Well, Clay Thorson has thrown it all over the yard against them. Um, I want to say he had close to 1,000 yards in the three games mm-hmm. against them. Uh, they kind of seem to be the one team that's figured out that defense, um, as weird as that is, but their game plan has been great. Um, you know, it's it's just it's been an odd series because Michigan State has been favored in all of these games, and Northwestern in two of them is one going away, like they haven't even been close. And so the fact that you know Michigan State is such a huge favorite despite all of the offensive issues that they have and the fact that they're nearly a 10-point favorite on the road against a team that's owned them, against a, a team that knows how to win Big Ten games. You know, they, Northwestern's won eight in a row. This is kind of when they start to get right. 
Michigan State hasn't really shown much of a pulse on offense outside of one week. Uh, it's it's definitely a weird, weird situation. Uh, to, to borrow from my guy, DeBear, Chris Felica, uh, their last five games against Power 5 teams, the Michigan State offense has three touchdowns and nine turnovers and 67 drives. And we'll cut it. That will not cut no. it, and it's just surprising to see how big of a favorite they are, knowing all of that. Do you think that offense with the Spartans is somewhere kind of in the middle of the 51 they put up against Western Michigan and the 7 they put up against Arizona State, or is it closer to one end of the spectrum? Yeah. Uh, I do think it's kind of in the middle. I mean, they, I think of the 10 drives they had against Arizona State, they crossed midfield on nine of them. It was just a lot of self-destructed, mm. self-destructive things, you know, whether it was missed field, goals too. missed field goals, you know, getting stopped on fourth and one when you don't have your best running back in the game, you know, a Lewerke fumble, you know, holding calls, you know, sketchy play call. I think it's just kind of an all-encompassing issue uh, from players and coaches that it's just kind of derailed drives and – you know, we'll see if they can get that corrected. Where do you think Hunter Johnson needs to improve on most? Uh, I haven't got a chance to watch much of the Northwestern games in depth. And, and the one game they um, played against Stanford, you know, Hunter Johnson wasn't even in the whole time. So where does he need to improve and um, how much of that will help boost Northwestern's offense? To be fair, they scored 30 points against um, UNLV. So it's not like they're, they've been getting shut out or, or held to single digits. Yeah. I think a lot of it might just be reps with him. I mean, we forget he's only started two games, mm-hmm. and I know he's a five-star, and you know, kind of expected him to come in and maybe not pick right up where Clayton Thorson left off, but we didn't think it would be this big of a drop-off. Uh, obviously, Stanford is normally a really good defensive team, but after seeing the way they played against USC and UCF, it kind of makes you question just how much this Northwestern offense is struggle. He did play better against UNLV last week. Uh, I know the numbers kind of say he was still inaccurate, but he definitely was plagued by some drops from his receivers. Uh, He had a great touchdown over the top to J.J. Jefferson. Probably should have been another one at a receiver drop. Uh, So I think it's just more reps with him. And I think once he, you know, just faces more live bullets and, you know, just has more opportunities, I think he'll just just gradually get better because that's what happens when you just have experience. Yeah. Is there any chance this is a game, you know, everyone jokes about, gets their jokes off about it being low scoring and neither team, you know, cracking 20 combined. And then we look up and it's like a 38-31 game, just one of those. Like I, I can see that happening for some reason. Yeah, I, and it's funny you mention that because there have been some really low, like, over-under type totals in these games. And then you've seen Northwestern win a 54-40. to mm-hmm. Like, that happened in 2016. You saw... Uh, in 2017, it was supposed to be another low-scoring game, and it's 39-31. So maybe this is a week where, like, you know, it's weird, it's noon, who knows what's going to happen, you know, probably 50-50 split in the crowd, and maybe fireworks just get set off because that's what happened when these teams play. Yeah, a couple uh, remaining matchups before we wrap up. Uh, interesting, Indiana and Rutgers both play two of the you know historically worst power five teams power five teams nonetheless in uh, UConn for Indiana Boston College Rutgers so we'll have to see how those go um not going to get into those right now but I, I do want to briefly touch on the night game on BTN Nebraska at Illinois uh it's a game to me that I think just with where both programs are it's, it's a very significant um you know result either way so Illinois I think you know with your four under lovey after losing to Eastern Michigan 
they have to show something that this is going in the right direction and, and get that confidence of the team up so that the, the season doesn't go off the rails early here because they got Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin coming up after that game. Nebraska, high expectations coming into this season, you know, looked at as a West dark horse or even favorite. And, you know, you, you can't, if you're looking to compete in the West, you'd like to not start off your season with a loss at Illinois. So what are you looking for in that game? And do you agree that, that the implications are rather significant? Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree. I mean, these are two teams that should be and probably expected to be 3-0, and they aren't. Um, and so, you know, they're kind of already behind the eight ball a little bit, even though they were both non-conference losses. They were both disappointing nevertheless. Uh, if you're in Nebraska, I mean, you're trying to win the West. is a game you can't afford to lose. But the problem is I want to see them actually play well for four full quarters away from Lincoln. And mm-hmm. we have not seen it. You know, they've lost eight straight road games. It's tied for the longest streak in school history. Frost still hasn't won a road game. And we've seen them, you know, whether it was the Colorado game this year, the Northwestern game last year, where they'll have a lead against a team that they should beat. And then things start to unravel and it's, oh, no, here we go again. And then it snowballs. If for me personally, if, if Nebraska is serious about winning the division, that's a game they need to go out for four quarters and win the game. And if you're Illinois, I want to see if you can just stay with the run. Rod Smith pretty much admitted that he got impatient and mm-hmm. went away from the run game, which is the strength of that team. So I'd like to see both teams kind of play to their, to their strengths, and hopefully it's a nice competitive game. And I think even if Illinois loses, if there's progress there, if it's, you know, if it's a one-score game late, I think that's okay. But if you can't go at home and get blown out. No, I agree. Um, not at this stage in, in their rebuild, absolutely not. Um, but we'll have to see, and, and you know, I think every league has a uh, you know has afforded a, a bad week or two. I think the league is still good and deep, and I think we'll see some better football this weekend. So um, excited to excited to take it in. H, enjoy it. Try and get some rest in between uh, you know these long days and long nights. You know, get some shut eye, and we'll see you back. Hopefully not in this room. Hopefully in uh, our revamped studio next week. Yeah, I hope so. But even if we're back, we'll still be. You know, we'll still chop it up like we always do. Got to keep the content coming. Yes, sir. All right, Adrian. All right. Thanks once again to H and Chris for joining me. Thanks as always to my producers Wes White and Julie Bronder for producing the show. We uh, have plenty more to talk about as we roll along here. Hard to believe the college football season is getting close to being third through the regular season. Um, I say it every week on here, but it just kind of accelerates faster and faster, it seems like, as we as we move through uh, football season. So before you know it, basketball will be here. We'll probably get some more basketball-related personalities coming up as uh, the seasons start to overlap. But until then, stick with mostly football here on the Take 10 Podcast, and we hope you stick with us. Thanks to everyone out there for listening. Make sure to uh, subscribe if you haven't already. And leave us a review if you like the show. And until next time, we'll talk to you soon here on the Take 10 Podcast.